Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Alrighty, welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and again, I am coming to you from the Dark Poutine studio here in Langley, British Columbia. It's hot in here. And uh, Matthew, live from the Eagle's Nest. With a snoring Steve at my feet. So if you hear Aww. a little bit of snoring, that's just my dog. I love Steve. Steve can snore away. I think people will accept the snoring of Steve in this <laughs> podcast. It's actually quite relaxing. Yeah, it is. I, there's something about animals, like especially cat purrs. I find cat purrs very relaxing. <laughs> Waffles has a very loud purr, and uh, Egg sort of squeaks when he purrs. It's really funny. Yeah, Waffles' purr is huge. Yeah. <laughs> the views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. The 1612 Lancashire trials of the accused Pendle Hill witches, one of the most notorious witchcraft trials in English history, took place during the reign of King James I. Twelve individuals from the area around Pendle Hill in Lancashire were accused of practicing witchcraft and brought to trial at Lancaster Assizes. Of these, ten were found guilty and hanged, one was found not guilty, and another died in prison. The trial is particularly remembered for the testimonies of the accused and their accusers, especially that of a young girl, Janet Device, whose evidence played a significant role in the convictions of her mother, her brother, and others involved. While the immediate aftermath of the Pendle trial saw heightened witch paranoia, the extremity of the trials and the nature of the evidence also sowed seeds of skepticism. Over time, as more trials took place, 
some segments of society began to question the validity of witchcraft accusations and the reliability of the testimony of children and confessions obtained under pressure, i.e. torture. It's believed that from the early 15th to the early 18th centuries, the total number of executions from English witch trials was just under 500. This is Dark Poutine episode 285, Away Game, The Trial of the Pendle Witches. The fear of witches in Britain has deep historical roots. Central to this fear was the influence of Christianity, which, as it became the dominant religion, viewed witchcraft as heresy and witches as those who had forsaken Christ for Satan. As Christianity spread, it often demonized Britain's pre-existing pagan traditions, associating old practices with evil and witchcraft. Beyond religious beliefs, societal and economic challenges often led to witches becoming scapegoats. During times of plague, famine, or economic strife, marginalized individuals particularly elderly women living alone, were blamed for these misfortunes. Mike, whenever you have a, a rise in moral conservatism, it seems to me that the other is often needed as something to focus on, right? So this conservative wants to stay away from arguments of freedom of choice, but instead sort of try to dehumanize the individual mm -hmm. by calling them morally corrupt. And uh, we're actually seeing a lot of that right now, aren't we? Yes, this is exactly why we're doing this episode, because it is relevant, interestingly. <laughs> the late medieval period saw an uptick in witch hunts across Europe, further fueled by influential texts like the Malleus Maleficarum, published in 1487. I picked up a wonderful edition of the book when I visited Cambridge University in 2022. It's a harrowing and mind-bending read. The Malleus Maleficarum, translated as The Hammer of the Witches, is the most notorious of the witch hunt manuals, submitted to the University of Cologne in 1487 and written in Latin by James Sprenger and Henry Kramer. Its exact origins and the details about its authors remain somewhat obscure. However, its impact is undeniable. The manual was used for three centuries guiding the detection, persecution, and execution of alleged witches in England and across Europe. It detailed the evidence and procedures for identifying, torturing, and executing those suspected of witchcraft. Many innocent individuals, especially women, were killed for trivial reasons based on a dangerous mix of superstition, pseudoscience, and societal fears leading to the persecution and execution of countless innocent individuals. Here are some specific criteria and methods the text advocated for. Physical marks. The manual suggested that witches often had specific marks on their bodies like moles, scars, or birthmarks, which were seen as the devil's mark or a sign of their pact with him. These marks were believed to be insensitive to pain so pricking or cutting them without eliciting pain was taken as evidence of witchcraft. The witch's teat, and this one's a weird one, this was believed to be a supernumerary nipple used by witches to feed their familiar spirits. If such a mark was found and it was insensitive or bled abnormally, it was taken as a sign of witchcraft. Witches' teats were likely abnormal skin growth or marks, ranging from moles, warts, and skin tags to actual third nipples or what we'd recognize today as melanomas, 
any unusual or unexplained skin feature would be labeled as a witch's teat, accused witches, mostly women, were subjected to traumatizing intimate examinations in search of this particular mark by their male accusers, even inside their various bodily orifices, and you can go to all kinds of places with that. During one trial, a witch's teat was found, quote, between the woman's seat and her secrets. What does that mean? On her taint? Yeah, that's what I assume of that. <laughs> Ugh. Can you imagine having some a bunch of creeps forcing themselves to, like, look at your most intimate... I'm telling you, it, it taint a witch mark, it's just a scar. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. The floating test. The manual endorsed the belief that witches would not sink in water due to their rejection of baptism. Suspected witches were tied and thrown into the water. If they floated, they were deemed guilty. Behavioral signs. Solitary behavior, especially in women, was seen as suspicious. Women who lived alone, particularly the elderly, or those who were outspoken, were often targets. Familiar spirits. Possession of pets, especially cats, toads, or other animals, was seen as evidence of having familiar spirits, which were believed to assist witches in their malevolent deeds. Witness testimonies. Accusations or testimonies from family members, neighbors, or community members were taken seriously. Often personal vendettas or community disputes led to false accusations. It reminds me of Monty Python. Well, she turned me into a newt. Midwives. The Malleus Maleficarum focused on midwives. They were believed to be in a prime position to harm infants by killing them, offering them to the devil, or using them in spells. Their intimate knowledge of childbirth and female health made them objects of suspicion. Unexplained events. If misfortunes or unexplained events occurred in a community, such as crop failures, sudden illness, or unexpected deaths, and they could be linked, however tenuously, to a suspected individual, it was seen as evidence of witchcraft. Confessions. While not a method of identification per se, once a person was accused, confessions were sought, often through torture. No matter how they were obtained, these confessions were considered definite proof of witchcraft. You know, there, there's a few in here that really stand out to me. Um, if the first is uh, midwives, and the other one is behavior signs. Yeah. Those say to me that it's more like a patriarchal society, gender bias, fear of female empowerment, right? Yep. Midwives do away with the need for male doctors. Mm -hmm. And if you're an outspoken woman or living on your own, you're obviously an independent, strong, intelligent woman. Right. And that just won't do in a male-dominated society. And uh, also, you know, imperfection in women, like moral scars, birthmarks, is is all rather sexist, right? Not sort of the the uh, yeah the pure white, uh, white as skin, perfect China. You know what I mean? Sort right. of thing. Yeah. Um, that sort of putting women who maybe were not, how do I say, traditionally considered beautiful yeah, as witches as well. Yeah, we'll get into a later description of one of the women who was accused of being a witch, which doesn't paint her in the most kindly light. And, and maybe it was, you know, she just had birth deformities or something like that, but... Mm -hmm. uh, because she had those things, they saw that as evidence that she was a witch. 
Legal stances in England also evolved with Henry VIII's 1542 law marking witchcraft as a felony and subsequent laws in 1563 and 1604 imposing even harsher penalties. Local folklore and superstitions further embedded the fear of malevolent witches in cultural consciousness. Additionally, the political landscape occasionally saw accusations of witches used to discredit rivals. The 16th century religious upheavals, including the Protestant Reformation, heightened the focus on religious purity, leading both Protestant and Catholic regions to intensify their efforts against perceived heresy, including witchcraft. And there you go again, right? The need for moral superiority and and an enemy to focus on. Yeah, anything that's other. Yeah focus on that and uh, it, it's what Hitler did and it's what we're seeing in the southern U.S. right now with laws that are anti-LGBT. I mean, Canada just made an announcement that people who are LGBT should look very carefully at the state that they may travel to before they go because they may be in jeopardy there, which is crazy. The quote from that, um, so it was a travel advisory warning, right? We, yeah. The gays are used to getting them for places like, a, you know, um, in the Middle East, you know, anti-gay Middle Eastern regimes and now some states in the United States. Yeah. In a quote from the information that was sent out from the Canadian government was, you have to follow the local laws, quote, even if they are against your human rights. Ugh. King James I's personal encounters with witchcraft, particularly the renowned North Berwick witch trials in Scotland, deeply shaped his perspective on the matter. To provide context, in 1589, as King James VI of Scotland, before he became King James I of England, he was prepared to wed Anne of Denmark. However, Anne's journey to Scotland was disrupted by violent storms, compelling her to seek shelter in Norway. Determined, James voyaged to Scandinavia, married her in Oslo, and they both faced tumultuous storms again on their return to Scotland. Upon their arrival, rumors circulated suggesting that witchcraft was responsible for the storms. Suspicion fell on a group of alleged witches from the coastal town of North Berwick, believed to have conjured the storms under Satan's influence to assassinate James. The North Berwick Witch Trials, commencing in 1590, spanned two years. Under duress, several accused admitted to conspiring with the devil to harm the royal couple. Agnes Sampson, a revered healer, and Dr. John Fian, an academic, were among the most prominent figures at the trial. Both faced severe torture, with Sampson admitting to the conspiracy and Fian being executed after several admissions and retractions. You just can't win, can you? Uh, if no. You say you're not evil, you're tortured till you say you are, then you, you know, oh no, actually I didn't mean it. Okay, I did. And then you're killed. Yeah. By the way, Mike, it's North Berwick, not Berwick. My birth mom is from Berwick, Nova Scotia, so that's the way we pronounce it. But So the Brits have different ways of pronouncing, uh, you know, Lancashire instead of Lancashire. Well, it started there, so I, I, like, go forward with the way it was meant. So she lives in Barrick, not in Berwick. Okay, I'll tell her that, <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure she'll be interested in that. She'll be confused where she lives. <laughs> the Barrick events profoundly affected James, solidifying his belief in the existence and peril of witchcraft. His direct participation in the trial processes underscored his convictions. 
Bolstered by the tortured confessions, James's intrigue in the supernatural culminated in his writing Demonology, published in 1597. It is a philosophical dissertation on contemporary necromancy and the historical relationships between the various methods of divination used from ancient black magic. The work also touches on topics like werewolves and vampires. Presented as a dialogue between two characters, the treatise explores the practice and dangers of witchcraft, arguing for its reality and the necessity of persecuting those practicing such arts. This text subsequently shaped the trajectory of witch trials in Scotland and England. The stage was set for what became the most famous witch trials in English history, the trials of the Pendle Hill witches in Lancashire. During the early 17th century, England was undergoing profound religious changes. The Reformation had instigated a departure from the Roman Catholic Church, establishing Protestantism as the state religion. Yet Lancashire stood out as a stronghold of Catholicism. Many locals either continued practicing the religion or clung to older pre-Reformation traditions. This religious divergence made Lancashire a hot spot for allegations of heresy and witchcraft, as these were perceived threats to the dominant Protestant order. During the early 1600s, the landscape around Pendle Hill was predominantly rural, with most of its inhabitants engaged in agricultural activities. They depended on the land for farming crops and raising livestock, making the region's economy largely agrarian. The early 1600s weren't flourishing times for many English regions, and Lancashire felt the pinch. The combination of economic strains and occasional poor harvests often led to community disputes and envy, and of course, accusations of witchcraft. And that's just ripe for a good old witch trial, isn't it? That you have a struggle for whose religion is going to dominate or having economic hardships. Yeah. Totally ripe for a witch trial. The terrain around Pendle Hill was characterized by its moorland, rough pastures, and wooded valleys. The hill itself rises to over 557 meters, 1,827 feet, making it a significant feature in the local landscape. This rugged terrain in places made access challenging, further contributing to the region's sense of isolation. The region was dotted with isolated hamlets and villages. These small communities had a strong sense of identity, partly as they were so insulated. The limited roads and paths connecting these villages were not as developed as they would be in later years, making travel quite challenging, especially during adverse weather. Local gentry, or landowners, controlled much of the land. They would lease out sections to tenant farmers, giving these landowners considerable influence in both economic and political local matters. The combination of the natural environment and the relative isolation of these communities fostered a rich tapestry of local legends, myths, and superstitions. The area's distinct landscape and the close-knit nature of its communities played a pivotal role in shaping the lives and beliefs of those who lived there. Like many European rural regions of the time, Lancashire was steeped in local folklore and supernatural beliefs. The presence of cunning folk believed to possess unique abilities like healing or finding lost items was integral to the local culture. Yeah, and here you start seeing often within these sorts of campaigns against people, you know, they call them cunning folk, but you have talented people or the intelligentsia, right? Mm -hmm. People that know medicine or people who are teachers off get themselves into the crosshairs of people. My husband and I were talking 
last night about Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge with Pol Pot. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things they did was kill everyone who's the intelligentsia who knew another language or who wore glasses. So if you wore glasses, you were a dead person. Yeah, because that suggested that you were smart and a reader. And so if you wore glasses, you were killed. Wow. On the political front, local authorities, especially magistrates, significantly influenced the trajectory of the witch trials. Their personal beliefs, aspirations, and interpretations of the law and religion determined their reaction to witchcraft allegations. A notable figure was Roger Noel, a magistrate who took a proactive role in the Pendle witch trials by spearheading the investigations. The events of 1612 in Lancashire revolved around the trial and execution of several witches, with the central figure being an older woman, accused of being a witch, named Elizabeth Southerns, a.k.a. Demdike. According to Thomas Potts' book on the trials, she was an elderly woman, around 80 years old, and had allegedly practiced witchcraft for about 50 years. Living in the vast expanse of Pendle Forest, she raised her children and grandchildren, teaching them the ways of witchcraft. Potts wrote that she was a primary agent for the devil in the region, and no one who crossed her or denied her was safe from her wrath. Six of the witches from Pendle were from two families, each led by Demdike. The others were Demdike's daughter, Elizabeth Device, and Demdike's grandchildren, James and Allison Device. Anne Whittle, known as Chaddix, with her daughter, Anne Redfern, Jane Bullcock and her son John, Alice Nutter, Catherine Hewitt, Alice Gray, and Janet Preston were implicated. Alice Nutter might stand out to Neil Gaiman fans as she inspired the character Agnes Nutter, mentioned in Gaiman and Pratchett's Good Omens, recently made into a popular series on Amazon Prime. The accusations against the Pendle witches began with an incident involving one of the accused witches, Alison Device, and a peddler named John Law. In March 1612, Alison Device was traveling on the road near Colne in Lancashire when she encountered Law. She asked him for some pins, which at the time could be used for various purposes, including healing practices and folk magic. For some reason, possibly because he refused or they had argued, Allison cursed him. Law suffered a stroke not long after, which left him partially paralyzed. Law's son, convinced that his father's ailment resulted from Allison's curse, reported the incident to the local magistrate, Roger Noel. On March 30th, 1612, Allison Device, her mother Elizabeth, and her brother James were questioned by Noel. Allison confessed to enlisting the devil's help to harm John Law after he accused her of theft. James supported her confession, while Elizabeth only hinted at her mother Demdike's involvement with the devil. Allison also accused Anne Whittle, known as Chaddix, of witchcraft, suggesting a long-standing feud between their families. She claimed her father had once paid Chaddix in oatmeal for protection, but his failure to pay led to his death. While the specific methods used to extract Allison's confession are not detailed in the surviving records, it's important to note the context of the times. During the early 17th century, accused witches were often subjected to intense and coercive interrogation. Torture was not legally sanctioned for witchcraft investigations in England, unlike some other parts of Europe. However, the conditions of imprisonment, including starvation, the fear of execution, 
and the relentless questioning could have been psychologically torturous. Allison quickly admitted to cursing law, but her confessions didn't stop there. According to Potts, Allison stated that around two years ago, her grandmother, Elizabeth Southerns, a.k.a. Demdike, frequently urged her to allow a devil or familiar spirit to appear to her during their begging trips. Her grandmother promised that if Allison let the spirit draw blood from her, she could have whatever she wished. She also mentioned an incident where John Nutter, another of the accused, asked her grandmother to heal his sick cow. Her grandmother, who was blind, went out late at night with Allison's assistance and stayed outside for about half an hour. Allison's sister later brought her back inside. The next day, Allison heard that the cow had died, and she firmly believed her grandmother had bewitched the cow to death. On another occasion, after Allison had collected a container of milk through begging, she left it at her grandmother's house. When she returned about a half hour later, butter had magically appeared in the milk, even though the amount of milk remained unchanged. She noted that her grandmother, who was in bed the whole time, had no butter in the house before Allison left. Allison also recalls an incident with Richard Baldwin in Pendle Forest. Baldwin forbade her from entering his land about two years prior after a disagreement with her grandmother. A few days later, her grandmother went out late at night and stayed out for an hour. The next day, Allison heard that Baldwin's daughter had fallen ill. The child's sickness lasted for about a year before she died. Allison is convinced that her grandmother bewitched the child, causing her death. Lastly, Allison mentions that after the disagreement with Baldwin, her grandmother frequently prayed for him quietly and loudly and often cursed him. She also accused other residents, including members of her own family, of witchcraft. This set off a chain reaction of accusations. More after a quick break. But first, here's a promo for Supernatural Circumstances. Oh yeah, that show. Hey Dark Poutine listeners, Mike here. Are you ready to dive deep into the mysteries of the supernatural? Join me and award-winning paranormal researcher Morgan Knudsen as we dissect chilling phenomena on supernatural circumstances. From spine-tingling hauntings to creepy cryptids and other paranormal subjects, we'll be your guides on this extraordinary journey. We're in Season 2 right now, so there are plenty of episodes for you to catch up on. Buckle up and explore the unknown with us and numerous expert guests. Download Supernatural Circumstances wherever you podcast. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts on this episode so far? Allison, is she trying to get out of this situation by throwing all these other people under the bus? No, we get into it a little later, but she, it is believed, really was convinced that she was a witch because they would use language around the house like, oh, a curse on that guy or this kind of thing, or even like do a ritual. Okay. And maybe these were just like regular pagan beliefs that they practiced, that the family had practiced through the generations. But yeah, Allison apparently believed she was really a witch. Okay. Yeah, so it sort of throws a wrinkle into things. But I, I curse people all the time, but I don't think I'm a witch. I'm noting this and I'm telling.
Demdike, Allison's grandmother, her mother Elizabeth Device, and her brother James were among those she implicated. Demdike also accused Anne Whittle, known as Chaddix, and her daughter Anne Redfern of witchcraft in her testimonies. The two families, the Devices and the Whittles, were rivals, and they accused each other of various malevolent witchcraft acts, further fueling the allegations. On the 2nd of April, Demdike, Chaddix, and Chaddix's daughter, Anne Redfern, were interrogated. Both Demdike and Chaddix admitted to dealings with the devil. Anne didn't confess, but Demdike implicated her in witchcraft activities. Another witness linked Redfern to a man's mysterious illness and death. Based on these testimonies, Noel sent the accused to Lancaster Jail to await trial. The arrest and initial trial of the four women could have concluded the situation. However, the situation escalated when a meeting was held at Malkin Tower, the home of the Device family, on Good Friday, the 10th of April, 1612. It's believed that Malkin Tower was located near New Church in Pendle or possibly at the current Malkin Tower farm site in Blackow. The gathering was seen as a witch's sabbat, and further suspicions arose about those who attended. James Device stole a sheep from a neighbor to provide food for the gathering. The event was attended by friends and others who supported the family. When Roger Noel learned of this gathering, he chose to delve deeper. On 27 April 1612, Noel and another magistrate, Nicholas Bannister, conducted an investigation. They aimed to uncover the reasons for the Malkin Tower meeting, its attendees, and the events that transpired there. The investigation led to the accusation of eight more individuals for practicing witchcraft. Elizabeth Device, James Device, Alice Nutter, Catherine Hewitt, John Bullcock, Jane Bullcock, Alice Gray, and Janet Preston. Since Janet Preston resided in Yorkshire, she faced trial at York Assizes. The rest were sent to Lancaster Jail, joining the four already incarcerated. And apparently they were all put in the same room. Which is fun. I'm kind of thinking that maybe they were just having a kegger and stole a goat for food and having a good time. And it, I think that's exactly what was going on. Somehow it turned into this, uh, oh, it was a witch meeting. Yep, exactly. It's a kegger. <laughs> kegger with a stolen goat. So really, the guy who stole the goat is probably the only person who should be in trouble. And as far as I'm aware, that person was a child anyway. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So... Oh, boy. Wow. The prevalence of witchcraft in the Pendle area indicates that some individuals might have worked as traditional healers, blending herbal remedies with charms, making them vulnerable to witchcraft accusations. Many of the claims arose from the Demdike and Chaddix families accusing one another, possibly due to professional rivalry, as they both might have been involved in healing, begging, and demanding money for goods. 80-year-old Demdike's confession was extracted most likely under torture. According to Potts' account, Elizabeth Southerns admitted that around 20 years ago, while returning from begging, she encountered a spirit, or devil, near a stone pit in Gouldshea, within Pendle Forest. This spirit, appearing as a boy with a half-black, half-brown coat, offered her anything she desired in exchange for her soul. When she asked his name, he identified himself as Tib. Hoping for the promised gains, she agreed to the deal. The spirit would appear to her for the next five or six years, usually around twilight, asking her what she wanted. She always declined his offers. However, after about six years, the spirit appeared as a brown dog on a Sunday morning while she was dozing with her child on her lap. It tried to draw blood from under her left arm. 
She woke up and prayed for her child's safety, but couldn't pray for herself. The dog then disappeared, and she felt almost mad for about eight weeks. I've known people who are schizophrenic. Right. right. And I don't know this for a fact, but I bet that a lot of people that may have had mental health issues or schizophrenic who thought they saw things mm-hmm. were considered witches. Maybe. So, so I'm wondering, was she or was this all from torture? Did she have an overactive imagination? Like, where is all this coming from? Well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, this was, you know, 400 years ago. So I would love to ask her, but <laughs> I don't think we can. Go ask her. <laughs> well, I'll hold a seance right here with my Ouija board. Witch, but, witch, burn them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but I think you're right. There were people who had psychosis or something like that who were considered to be witches because they said they saw and heard weird things. Yeah. So instead of like taking care of these people, as we know now, they're not well. These people were seen as witches and sometimes burned or hung. Do you really have a Ouija port? I do. Cool. But when it comes to these families, I think they were really practicing some pagan beliefs. That's what all the reading that I've done seems to indicate. It's really, really interesting. Perhaps they thought they were witches, but I highly doubt that they were powerful enough to affect people's lives in the way in which they were accused. Demdike admitted to the incident with Baldwin, mentioned by Allison. Just before the last Christmas after her daughter had helped Richard Baldwin's family at the mill, Elizabeth was advised by her daughter to ask Baldwin for compensation for the help. On her way to Baldwin's house, she encountered him. Baldwin rudely told Elizabeth and her daughter Allison, who was guiding her blind mother, to leave his property, calling them whores and witches. He threatened to burn one and hang the other. Elizabeth cursed Baldwin, and as she moved on, the demon Tib appeared, urging her to seek revenge on Baldwin. She told the spirit to take revenge on Baldwin or his kin. After this, she never saw the spirit again. Elizabeth also shared a method of witchcraft. To harm or kill someone, one could create a clay figure representing the person. If they wanted to cause pain in a specific body part, they would prick that part of the figure with a thorn or pin. They'd burn part of the figure to make a body part waste away, and to kill someone, they'd just toss the entire figure into the fire. Janet Preston was the first to face trial at York Assizes on 27th of July, 1612. Her trial was overseen by judges Sir James Altham and Sir Edward Bromley. Janet faced charges of using witchcraft to murder local landowner Thomas Lister of Westby Hall. Despite her not guilty plea, she had a prior accusation in 1611 of killing a child through witchcraft, though she was acquitted then. A significant piece of evidence against her was that Lister's corpse bled when she touched it. Further, James Device claimed that Janet sought assistance for Lister's murder during a meeting at Malkin Tower. Ultimately, she was found guilty, sentenced to death, and executed on the 29th of July at Navesmere, now the location of York Racecourse. On the 18th and 19th of August, 1612, the trial of the Lancashire witches occurred at Lancaster Castle. All the accused individuals were from Lancashire and were tried there, with Judges Altham and Bromley again presiding. The main prosecutor was Roger Noel, a local magistrate who had gathered all the testimonies and confessions. The most significant testimony came from nine-year-old Janet Device against her mother Elizabeth, a widow. 
Her participation as a key witness was unusual for 17th century trials, but King James had advocated for exceptions in witchcraft trials, as noted in his book Demonology. Janet not only identified attendees of the Malkin Tower meeting, but also testified against her own family members. According to Potts, when Janet was called, her mother began cursing and shouting at her. This terrified Janet so much that she tearfully told the judge she couldn't speak with her mother present. Potts wrote that this particular witch had a distinct birthmark. Her left eye was positioned lower than her right. One eye looked down while the other looked up. This deformity was so unusual that many in the courtroom remarked they had rarely seen anything like it. Despite pleas and promises of leniency, the mother continued her outbursts, hoping to force her daughter to retract her previous statements made to Mr. Noel. She denied her own confessions, hoping to escape the punishment the law had in store for her due to her crimes and wicked lifestyle. Finally, when no other method worked, the judge ordered the mother to be removed. Janet was then placed on a table in front of the entire court. She provided her testimony to the jury as follows. She said, My mother is a witch, and that I know to be true. I have seen her spirit in the likeness of a brown dog which she calls Ball. The dog did ask what she could have him do, and she answered that she would have him help her to kill. Janet said Elizabeth asked Ball to help her kill John Robinson of Barley, also known as Swire. With Ball's assistance, according to the court's investigation, Swire was indeed killed through witchcraft. Janet's mother, the girl said, had been practicing witchcraft for the past three or four years. Janet further confessed that her mother summoned Ball again about a year later, who appeared as before. Her mother wanted him to kill James Robinson, also known as Swire, of Barlow, who was John's brother. Ball agreed, and around three weeks later, James died. Janet Device stated that on the recent Good Friday, around 20 people, of whom she remembers only two being men, gathered at her grandmother's house, known as Malkin Tower, around noon. Her mother informed her that all these individuals were witches. They had come to give a name to the spirit or familiar of Allison Device, Janet's sister. For their meal, they had beef, bacon, and roasted mutton. According to her brother James Device, this mutton came from a sheep belonging to Christopher Swires of Barlow. The sheep had been stolen and brought to their house the night before by James, and Janet witnessed it being killed and then consumed. Furthermore, Janet recognized and named six of the witches present, the wife of Hugh Hargraves from Pendle, Christopher Howgate of Pendle, who was her uncle, his wife Elizabeth, Dick Miles from Rough Lee, Christopher Jacks from Thorny Holm, and his wife. She didn't recall the names of the others present, but she knew her mother and brother were among them. Lastly, Janet admitted that her mother taught her two prayers, one to heal those who are bewitched and another to obtain drinks. After all the testimony was in, the court found Elizabeth guilty and she was sentenced to hang. This is an important little piece here, right? Yeah. You have a, you have a child, a little girl. Right giving evidence that is the main evidence that had her mother found guilty and convicted. And he, he, the children are children, right. right? She could have been spanked the day before, so she's pissed off with her mom, right? Yep. She could have not really understood what was happening, right? Mm -hmm. uh, being easily confused or manipulated as a child. And she could have been frightened. And manipulated by people asking the questions. To, to, to You can do that easily, right? Yeah. That's why like you need specialists to help get 
witness statements out of children because you can't lead them because they're impressionable, right? Right. Janet's accusations then fell on her brother James. She said he had been practicing witchcraft for about three years. She recalled that at the start of this period, a black dog with James named Dandy appeared in their mother's house. When Dandy appeared, James asked it to help him kill an elderly woman named Mistress Townley of Carr. Dandy agreed to assist, and both James and Dandy, according to Janet, expressed their intent to harm Miss Townley. Janet visited Carr Hall, where she saw Miss Townley looking unwell in the kitchen. This made Janet believe that her brother, with Dandy's assistance, had harmed Miss Townley. The court was impressed by Janet's testimony, especially given her young age. They admired her composure, clarity, and understanding as she provided evidence against her own brother James, who didn't deny her claims and acknowledged their truth. However, the accusations against James didn't end there. He was known for his malicious spells, practices, and meetings to plot harm and mischief. It was believed that he followed the teachings of his grandmother, Old Demdike, and his mother, Elizabeth Device. When he began practicing witchcraft, he was said to have constantly caused harm and even death. He wouldn't let anyone who slighted him go without facing some danger. Based on these accusations, he was subsequently charged with the murder of two more individuals. James Device, just a few years older than his nine-year-old sister, denied charges of using witchcraft to murder Anne Townley and John Duckworth. His confession, made earlier to Noel, coupled with his sister's testimony, sunk him. The jury also convicted him. Wow, so this nine-year-old girl's taken down her brother and her mother. Well, yeah, and also she's implicating all these other people. Lots of other people. Yeah, and her testimony is used against them as well. On August 18th, Ann Whittle, also known as Chaddix, faced accusations of murdering Robert Nutter. Despite her initial plea of innocence, a confession she'd given to Roger Noel, possibly under duress, was shared in court. James Robinson, who had lived with the Chaddix family two decades prior, provided evidence against her. He recalled Nutter blaming Chaddix for spoiling his beer and mentioning that many considered her a witch. Overwhelmed, Chaddix confessed, seeking God's mercy and pleading for the court's leniency towards her daughter, Anne Redfern. On August 19th, before Anne Redfern's initial court appearance, the cases of the three Samlesbury witches were presented. Later in the day, Anne was charged with Robert Nutter's murder. The evidence against her was deemed insufficient, leading to her acquittal. However, the next day didn't favor Anne Redfern. She was on trial then for the murder of Robert Nutter's father, Christopher, and she pleaded innocent. In court, Demdike's statement accusing Anne of crafting clay figures of the Nutter family was read. Witnesses labeled Anne as a witch even more dangerous than her mother. She was convicted despite her consistent denial of guilt and not testifying against any co-accused. Jane Bullcock and her son John from New Church were charged and convicted of murdering Janet Dean through witchcraft. Both refuted attending the Malkin Tower gathering, but Janet Device identified Jane as an attendee and John as the one roasting a stolen sheep during the Good Friday gathering at Demdike's residence. Alice Nutter, distinctively wealthier than the other accused, remained silent throughout her trial, only pleading not guilty to the charge of murdering Henry Mitten through witchcraft. The prosecution claimed she, along with Demdike and Elizabeth Device, caused Mitten's death after he denied Demdike a penny. 
The primary evidence against Alice was James DeVice's claim that Demdike informed him about the murder and Janet DeVice's statement about Alice attending the Malkin Tower meeting. It's speculated that Alice might have been attending an illicit Catholic service on Good Friday and remained silent to protect fellow Catholics. The Nutter family had many Catholics, with two executed as Jesuit priests. Alice was convicted. Catherine Hewitt, also known as Mold Heels, was convicted of murdering Anne Folds. She was a clothier's wife from Cole and had attended the Malkin Tower meeting with Alice Gray. James DeVice's testimony claimed both Hewitt and Gray confessed to killing a child, Anne Folds, during the meeting. Janet DeVice also identified Catherine and confirmed her presence at the meeting. So again, here's Janet DeVice sinking another person, but <laughs> we wanted to talk a bit about some witchy nicknames, because we've seen a few. We've seen Demdike and Chaddix, and now we see Mold Heels. She must have had horrible feet. <laughs> or stinky. Stinky feet or something. I think I'd be the gay wizard of potions and herbs since I hawk cannabis. <laughs> you might be, yeah, exactly. Well, you're you're definitely going to uh, that uh, other place, Matthew. You're you're. I am totally evil. I did have a massage today by my neighbor, and when she when she's doing my feet, and I'm like, yeah, you can just call me Hobbit. I have like big, thick, totally flat, honking feet, and I'm like, I'm like, sorry for the Hobbit feet, and she's almost died laughing. Oh dear. <laughs> A detailed account of the trial of Alice Gray, accused alongside Catherine Hewitt for Anne Fold's murder, is missing from Potts' records. She's been mistakenly listed as one of the Samlesbury witches, even though she was identified at the Malkin Tower meeting. She was acquitted. Alison Device, whose initial interaction with John Law set off the chain of events leading to the trials, was charged with causing harm through witchcraft. Ultimately, her alleged victim, John Law, confronted her in court. Allison seemed convinced of her own guilt and confessed when faced with Law. She was convicted. According to pendlewitches.co.uk, ten individuals were convicted in Lancaster and sentenced to death based on the presented evidence. Eight others were acquitted, though it's unclear why, as the evidence against all of them seemed equally questionable and baseless. The ten people who were sentenced included... Anne Whittle, also known as Chaddix, Anne Redfern, Chaddix's daughter, Elizabeth Device, Demdike's daughter, James Device, Elizabeth's son, Allison Device, another child of Elizabeth, Alice Nutter, Jane Bullcock, John Bullcock, Jane's son, Catherine Hewitt, also known as Mold Heels, and Isabel Roby. Elizabeth Southern would have been hung as well. But she died in jail because she was an old lady and wasn't being taken care of very well. That's a big number of people in a small community. Yeah, it really is. These individuals were executed in Lancaster on August 20th, 1612, hanged on the moor above the town after being found guilty of using witchcraft to kill 16 residents of the forest of Pendle. Can you imagine? Essentially, it would have been 11 people had... Elizabeth Southern Demdike not died, that would be a lot of people seen hanging above the town. What a what a message that would send. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's probably the point. Yeah, that is entirely the point. The alleged murder victims were Robert Nutter from Greenhead, Richard Asseton from Downham, a child of Richard Baldwin, John Device from Pendle, Ann Nutter from Pendle, a child of John Moore, 
Hugh Moore from Pendle, John Robinson, also known as Swire, James Robinson, Henry Mitten from Roughly, Ann Townley, Henry Townley's wife, John Duckworth, John Hargreaves from Goldshaw Booth, Blaze Hargreaves from Hyam, Christopher Nutter, and Folds from Near Colne. As mentioned, the peddler, John Law, cursed by Allison Device, had lost the use of his limbs. There could be any number of explanations for the deaths that happened and all that kind of stuff. Sure, maybe they had pissed people off at some point and somebody had had actually set a curse upon you and your family or whatever. But the, these deaths were over some time. Mm-hmm. It's the, what is it, the 1600s? Yeah. People died sooner. Very often. Accidents and illnesses and potential caught deaths. And there's just no evidence that they actually killed anybody, right? They, they cursed these people or had an issue with them, and that was it. Right. As we mentioned, there were around 500 executions over the span of the English witch trials in the 15th to 18th centuries. The Pendle Witch Trials represent over 2% of that overall tally. So ironically, in 1634, a woman named Janet Device found herself in court accused of witchcraft by a child, 10-year-old Edmund Robinson. A woman bearing that same name appeared among 20 individuals tried at Lancaster Assizes on 24th March, 1634. However, it's unclear if this was the same Janet Device. She was accused of murdering Isabel Nutter, the wife of William Nutter. In these trials, the primary witness for the prosecution was a young boy named Edmund Robinson, who was just 10 years old. Although almost all the defendants were found guilty, the judges opted not to issue the death penalty. Instead, they presented the case to King Charles I. Upon further questioning in London, Robinson confessed to making up his testimony. Even so, while four of the defendants were eventually granted pardons, they all likely met their end in Lancaster jail. At the time, even if found not guilty of the crimes you were accused of, prisoners were responsible for paying the bills for their stay behind bars, and many were destitute and couldn't afford to pay, thus leaving them incarcerated. An official document from August 1636 mentions Janet Device as one of the inmates in prison, so she probably died there. So, yeah, that is ironic, sort of, if it was the same one, sort of a what, go, what goes around comes around sort of thing. Yeah. But isn't that insane? If you're put in jail, even if you're not guilty, you have to stay in jail if you can't pay for having been in jail. It's, you, can't, you cannot win. No, there's no winning. You cannot win. If you were poor, you couldn't win. No. Eighty years after the 1612 Pendle Trials, the Salem Witch Trials took place in 1692 in Colonial, Massachusetts. There were a series of hearings and prosecutions of individuals accused of practicing witchcraft. Sparked by mysterious illnesses and bizarre behaviors among young girls in Salem Village, the ensuing hysteria led to the execution of 20 people, mostly women, and the imprisonment of many others. Fueled by religious extremism, superstitions, and underlying social and political tensions, the trials are now infamous as a cautionary tale about the dangers of isolation, false accusations, and lapses in due process. The events have since become synonymous with mass hysteria and the consequences of unchecked religious fervor. 
At Salem, on the prosecutor's table, was a book called The Country Justice by Michael Dalton. On page 378 of that book is a reference to the 1612 testimony of Janet Device at the trials of her mother and brother. Janet's earlier testimony had set a precedent for accepting children's testimonies in witchcraft trials. During the Salem witch trials, young girls, including Abigail Williams and Betty Paris, played central roles as accusers. The acceptance of spectral evidence, where the accusers claimed to see the spirits of the witches harming them, was particularly controversial. The relevance of Janet Device's testimony to the Salem trials lies in how both events underscore the dangers of accepting uncorroborated testimonies, especially from impressionable young individuals, without rigorous scrutiny. Both historical episodes serve as cautionary tales about the consequences of mass hysteria, the use of legal proceedings, and the potential for manipulation in such charged atmospheres. Yeah, and be cautious of uh, people sitting in high places whipping up the idea of like a moral panic. There's always an agenda with this kind of stuff. Always an agenda. And that's it for this episode of Dark Poutine. Away Game, The Trial of the Pendle Witches. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or one 877 darkptn We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Alrighty. On to voicemails. Matthew, are you ready for some voicemails? Sure. Okay, let us listen to the very first one. Hey guys, um, my name's Maya. I'm originally from Victoria, BC, and I lived in Kingston, Ontario for five years while I did my undergrad and work. And now I live in New York City. And I just wanted to call and say that I love listening to your guys' podcast. Um, it's kind of nice to listen to uh, when I'm doing random tasks or just hanging out by myself because I live alone. And it makes me feel like you guys are with me hanging out so yes thank you and um have a great day and go take a shit in your hat bye what a nice voicemail <laughs> new york city she's moved to the big city new york i'm envious of people who get to move to new york city i like new york a lot i have lots of friends there i had an apartment mm-hmm. there for a little while when i was younger um it's a little bit mm-hmm. big for my liking now that i'm a old man <laughs> ah, a little big, well, a little it's just busy, a little bit full on. You know, what do you think she does there in New York City, Matthew? Um, I think she services the witch community of New York uh, with broomstick maintenance. Well, broomstick maintenance. Well, someone's got to do it. She gets them all flight ready, right? Have you ever been to the cool broom store in uh, Granville Island? I. Did not know there was a broom store in Granville Island, on Granville Island. Yeah, they make the old sort of whisk brooms there. It's really cool. At least it was it was there the last time I was in Granville Island, which was a while ago. But I love that we still call it an island. It's not an island at all. All right, let's move on to our next voicemail. Hey guys, it's Tom calling from Rodney, and and you know where Rodney is. You can look it up on the. Uh, 
get that celestial cartographer of yours to find it. Um, yeah, it's small in the middle of nowhere. Loving the show. Haven't been listening that long. A couple of comments, uh, all intended to show my love. Uh, dark poutine is not what I'm feeling. That's, uh, the show's not dark. The show is very enlightening, for one thing. And, uh, you know, it doesn't sensationalize. It, it brings you two to bear on all these subjects. And you two bring a very human and a very kind and a very uh, personable touch to your stories. So uh, I was thinking maybe deep poutine. You know, kind of gets you out of the true crime genre where I don't, I don't think you totally fit there. You know, this latest issue that I just heard about HIV non-disclosure, uh, I mean, that feels solidly to me like uh, something in culture, right? Maybe you're in the crime and culture genre or something. I don't know, but not true crime. You're way more than true crime. Love you guys. A uh, second thing is how much do I owe you? Like, um, I give Wikipedia $1.75 a month. And I'm I'm trying to figure out well how do I how do I value how do what, what what's your market value like I don't know how to give to something like this like what would you guys give yourself like a toonie like after a show or whatever so you know uh, one last thing guys this go shit in your hat thing I uh, like I haven't been listening a long time I have been around in Canada for quite a while various parts of the country haven't heard it. And too many other places except on your show. Maybe I have heard it somewhere, but my concern is I'm hearing all these people calling you and loving you from the United States and Israel and all of the world, and they're all going to think that go shit in your hat is some kind of Canadian thing. Well, it is Canadian. It's it's all it's everything North American, really. We're making it Canadian. Well, you exactly, and it's <laughs> we are actually inserting. Uh, weird canadian ideals into other people other cultures brains about us so and sometimes you just make that shit up <laughs> and as far as yeah exactly and as far as uh how much i would pay us one million dollars <laughs> well here's the thing we just passed 20 million downloads boom 20 million downloads that is a lot of downloads I would love a penny for every one of our 20 million downloads or better yet, 10 bucks for every <laughs> one of our 20 million downloads. And then Matthew and I could retire. You'd still have dark poutine. It would be just really well produced because we wouldn't be producing it anymore. We, Matthew and I would be just getting together, having a conversation, reading somebody else's well-researched script. <laughs> I think I think Tom is so he said he's in Rodney, yeah. Uh I think he's the chief sorcerer of the arcane realm and he lives the I don't know if you know Rodney that well but there's a citadel of enchantment in Rodney and and that that's where he sits and chief sorcerers in Rodney. Oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> I'm staying on the theme today. Staying on the theme. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But where, I also, I, I, I also appreciated that what Tom is saying about um, beyond true crime, mm -hmm. uh, because I really like that actually. And um, well, that's that's my aim is to be a a little a different voice in this genre. I mean, we are we do still fit in the genre. I really believe that, but we are also in the cultural and history uh, genres as well. 
But uh, but yeah, I want to be a different voice in true crime. Absolutely. And you know me, Mike. I, I like I like doing the dark history episodes the best. Yeah, yeah. I and and I'm sure that uh, this is uh, this is one of those because it happened in 1612. I don't know what all. it says about me that I'm I'm more comfortable talking about mass killings than I'm about individual. Oh no! <laughs> right, because dark history usually is like entire peoples, right? Um, yeah, it doesn't quite no. make sense, but I, I think you know where I come from. It's like uh, I do. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. All right, it's time for Donut Money Donors and Patreons. Yay. And first up, as far as patrons go, we have Wendy Jedry, and I don't know where Wendy is from. Wendy is from Chicago. She's from Chicago, Chicago, Ch- that Chicago. Yeah. And what does Wendy do there in Chicago? Let me guess it's something witch-related. Crystal ball consultants. Oh, there you go. I would yeah. love, I, I am looking for a crystal ball. I actually am. Mm-hmm. So I would love to be able to find uh, an interesting looking presented crystal ball that doesn't cost $500. So. Well, so Wendy is very, she, what she does, she, she does a couple hour interview mm-hmm. and, and gets your birth date and sort of all the star alignments and all that stuff and figures, figures out which kind of crystal ball would be most useful and practicable for this mm-hmm. specific person. That's what she does. Oh, that's really cool. Mm. I like that idea. Yeah. So next up, we have Catherine Rowan Jones. I don't know where specifically she's from, but she's paying us in pounds. So I would assume it's somewhere in the UK. I think she's from Ricelip. Okay, where's that? And part of the UK. Okay. And what does she do there? Extended London in some ways. Yeah. What does she do there? She she helps people realm, realm travel. She's a navigator. Realm travel? She's a navigator for, I can't say it, realm traveling. So what kind of realms? Like other realms other than this one? Yeah, like Elvenwood or Dragonfire Peaks or even the Land of Leprechauns. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Not Papua New Guinea. (laughs) I have a rule to never say Papua New Guinea because that's all you ever got before. Okay, next we have... Early listeners will understand. Yeah. Next we have Jason McFarlane. Jason. And I don't know where Jason's from. He's from Hollywood. Hollywood. Okay, yeah. and what, what does Jason do there in Hollywood? A brother of Seth. Oh, a brother of Seth. So what is that exactly? Well, Seth McFarland. Oh, he, oh, Seth McFarlane's brother. Wow. Yeah. So, so, so he does nothing. Oh, he, he knows Peter Griffin then. <laughs> he's, he's just living off of his brother's money. <laughs> Sarah Jessica Parker's still on TV and she looks like a foot. <laughs> I bet she wishes he was his brother. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Anyway. Oh, dear. So he just lives off the avails of his brother. He doesn't really do anything. Yeah, I would too. Uh, hey, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, there's no judgment from me in that at all. Yeah, being a kept person might be a fun thing. You know what I mean? Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yes. We're, you and I are both too old to be kept boys at this point in our lives. Well, remember we had a caller named Marion last time? Uh-huh. She was from New York. Yeah. Uh, well, Marion R. Khan sent us some donut yeah. money. Thank Look you, Marion. Well, thank you so much. It, she said she that, was going to do it, and she did it. I really appreciate that, Marion. That's great. Thanks, Marion. We love you. Uh, and we're not entirely sure what Marion does there. Marion can call in any time. She can, yes. Yeah, yeah. What does she do for a living or with herself? Potion brewing. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. Well, but I need a good potion for tinnitus. If anybody has a potion for tinnitus <laughs> that isn't some quacky thing that I've heard before, like, oh, tap your fingers on the back, the back of your head. Of your head. Yeah, yeah, I've I, tried all that shit. It doesn't it, work. None of know, it works. My mother had this belief when I was young that... If you had like a boil yep, or a bump, you'd hit it really hard with a Bible. Oh, dear. <laughs> hit it with the, well, why I had a I ganglion. Why, why don't I hit you upside the head with a Bible? See if it gets rid of your tinnitus. Well, here's the thing. I had what's called a ganglion cyst on my wrist. Ew, and essentially gross. what it is, is uh, it's um, nerves poking out of the sheath. Of, yes, right? And it, it makes sheath. a bump. A sheath. The sheath. I, you know, some people hate the word panties. I don't like the word sheath when it comes sheath. to body parts. Well, anyway, the doctor looked at me and he said, I'm going to do something that's really weird. And I said, okay. And he said, it's going to surprise you and it may hurt a little, but it will make your cyst go away. He said, put your hand put your down hand on that, the table hey, flat. What? And so I put my arm and hand down on the table. He took a big medical text and gave it a whack. And guess what? The cyst was gone. Instantly. Instantly. So your mother was correct. No, there you go. Number one. And he said, yeah, if you need to do it again, take a textbook or the Bible laying around your house and (laughs) do that. Satanic Bible. Take the satanic Bible. (laughs) My satanic Bible. Yes. Which I do have as well. Of course you do. You have like... So if you don't know, Mike, he has... No word of a lie. Five trillion books. Mm-hmm. You do. Yeah. You have, I have more, many. You, have, you have more books than I've ever seen anyone have. No. Oh, well, I've always wanted my own library. And I used to picture, um, sort of visualize my house with having uh, a library that was modeled after the Alexandrian <laughs> library. <laughs> the one that burned down? The one that burned. Well, hopefully mine will never burn. I It will just be uh, a Pre-burn. really cool place. <laughs> but I would love to have some uh, a house where I had a room that would looked like the Alexandrian library. Big library, a table for playing board games with friends. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, uh, that's it for Donut Money donors and patrons. Thank you all. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. 
for a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that is it for this episode of Dark Poutine. So... Until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Because there are enough of those already. There really are. (laughs) 